Let me pray, and then we'll continue in our uh, scripture reading and our sermon. Father, we come to you and we praise you and thank you for the freedom in the gospel that we can come as your people freely to you, that we can continue in this time of worship where we gather together and go before your throne through your uh, studying your scripture and your word and as we praise and worship you and experience all that we experience. We know that none of us deserve to do that, but because you have decided to come to us and save us, we now can. Help us, Father, now as we continue this time of worship where we study your word, that you would help our minds to be ready and our hearts to be steady as we capture as much as we can the truths you want us to learn today. In Jesus' name and in him alone we pray. Amen. Okay. So it's been a few weeks since I preached here, and I've been in a few out-of-town weddings uh, these past few Sundays, but I'm excited to be back and continuing our series through the book of Acts where we kind of left off, right? And we're going to be picking back up where we left off in chapter 18, That's where we're at in the book of Acts. We've been preaching it from chapter 1, and we're going to just continue till the end. And what's interesting, chapter 18, the part of chapter 18 that we're going to talk about today, talks about the very thing that we all just experienced here in Covenant City Church in the past two Sundays. And it talks about the fact that God enjoys to care for his people, not just through one person, but through many different people. Since I and our normal preachers have been away for the past two Sundays, our church has had the privilege of being ministered to different people who wouldn't usually take on those roles, okay? Davin, uh, wherever you are, uh, he preached the sermon for us two Sundays ago. Thankful for that. Last week, we got to hear from Pastor Michael Christian from Gibeon Church in Surabaya, and we're thankful for that. I know they have busy schedules. Elias retired his beloved guitar for a week and did liturgy for us. Mike led us in communion, right? And look, I'm not trying to justify my holidays with the Bible. (laughs) But that is the picture of the early church that we see here in our passage today in Acts chapter 18. God using not just one person, but many different people in many different ways to care for his people holistically. And there's an encouragement for us here about the urgency of co-laboring together, right? All of God's people chipping in to do his work. And more importantly, we'll see also the why. Why can God use you, Christians with full-time day jobs, to be just as effective of a laborer and just as useful for God's kingdom as pastors are and as other full-time ministers are? Okay? Let's get to it. This is God's word, taken from Acts chapter 18, verse 18 to 28. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Chancheria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he'd landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, 
a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to, cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Thus says the Lord. Okay, there's three things I want to point out from our passage today. First, there's no such thing as Christian elitism because God's presence dwells in all of his people, pointing us all continually to Christ. Okay? That may not be immediately clear from the passage, but let's just start and get into our first point. There's no such thing as Christian elitism. Let's start with the first half of the passage, verses 18 to 24. And what we see the author doing here is that he sorts of exits Paul out of the story, right? Paul goes off to the city called Galatia, but the storyline, if you imagine like a TV screen, right, the screen stays on this other city called Ephesus, where the spotlight goes to three other people than Paul. Now, the exiting of Paul out of the story in itself implicitly emphasizes our point here, doesn't it? The one person that God's used to do most of the work, him and Peter, but mostly Paul, right, throughout the book of Acts, he's taken out of the story. Why? Because God doesn't need him to move the story forward. As much as God's used Paul throughout the book of Acts, he's not the one upon whom everything hinges upon, you see. God can do his work through other people too. Which brings us to the three main characters in this part of the story. First, you see this young talented, up-and-coming preacher named Apollos, and then a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. All right? Let's talk about these three people, and I think we'll see the point here. Let's start with Apollos, who was first introduced in verse 24. Look at how impressive his CV was. Okay? Verse 24, 25. First, the author, Luke, specified that Apollos grew up in a city called Alexandria, which was the academic and philosophical center of the region at the time. That was very intentional why our author mentioned that. He's trying to make a point. He's a smart guy. Okay? Good upbringing. And his name, Apollos, which is short for Apollonia, by the way, means a smart man. (laughs) Then it says, verse 24 and 25, he's an eloquent man. He's learned in the scriptures. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. He's spoke accurately the things concerning Jesus. So not only does he know his Bible and his theology well, he also knows the gospel really well. He knew Jesus really well. He taught accurately the things of Jesus. But then, it's not over, on top of all that, verse 25 says, he was fervent in spirit, which means that all of his theology wasn't just dry head knowledge, and his ministry wasn't just a career for him. He was fervent in spirit. He was burning with passion for the one who died for him. And that's why he's in ministry. That's why he's doing what he's doing. Not 
for the money, not for the acclaim. Pretty impressive guy, right? He had it all. He was the next best thing in the church scene in Ephesus. But, it says, he lacks one thing. One thing. He had it all, but verse 25 says, he knew only the baptism of John, meaning he didn't know yet about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk more about later in our second point, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about that verse here, okay? But for now, pause on that, and I just want us to focus on the fact that Apollos lacked some kind of doctrinal understanding, and look at who confronted him about that. Verse 26, it was Priscilla and Aquila. Remember who they were? We talked about them three weeks ago when we started Acts chapter 18. They were tent makers who got kicked out of their city because of persecution. So just picture that situation in your head, okay? Take a second to think about these two blue-collar workers who were not full-time ministers, who were not particularly gifted preachers, who didn't have big churches, they weren't big-shot leaders, they're just your everyday churchgoers who probably had no money and no assets because they just got kicked out of their home city. These two people took this big-shot, well-educated preacher Apollos aside, verse 26 says, and explain to him the way of God more accurately. Now, when does that ever happen today? (laughs) When's the last time you saw a church member take the pastor aside and tell him that he lacked in some kind of doctrinal accuracy? And the pastor listened. His ego didn't flare up. His pride didn't tweak. He listened. There's no indication here in the story that Apollos was upset. The story just continues as if it's no big deal. And this is what really got me as a pastor. Look at verse 26. When did Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside and instruct him about his lack in doctrine? It says it was after Apollos preached boldly in the synagogue. Now, do you want to know when's the worst time to give me sermon feedback? (laughs) It's right after I boldly preach a passage, (laughs) a sermon. That's the worst time. That's why our sermon staff feedback is on Tuesday, right? Gives the pastor two days to kind of calm down, see his own mistakes, you know. (laughs) And I don't know if you noticed this, but a few Sundays ago, I actually did make a mistake in my sermon. It was a sermon where Paul was speaking against Greek gods And I mistakenly said Nordic gods instead of Greek gods. And then I went on this long tangent about Nordic gods. I was probably watching too many Viking shows with my wife on Netflix. I I don't know where that came from. And after the sermon, someone spotted it out and corrected me on it. And I was thankful they did. But it was also like, oh, that's so embarrassing, right? And I was so bold when I was talking about it too. And I told the person who did that, man, don't ever do that again. I'm joking. I didn't say that. I said, thank you. You should have done that. You know, it's totally fine to do that. Now, I'm not saying be overly nitpicky to your pastors, okay? I'm not saying be overbearing to them. I've had my fair share of that. Trust me. The Bible does call us to respect our leaders, especially those who preach the word, it says, 
Don't just accuse your elder of stuff flippantly, 1 Timothy chapter 5 says. And believe me, I'm thankful for all that, and I'm all for that. But we can't take that too far and overstretch the gap between pastor and member or elder and member and think it's as if God's especially anointed them somehow to all, only they can run the show. That's too far. God can take the greatest apostle ever, arguably, uh, Paul, out of the picture and use poor tent makers to correct an educated pastor in order to take care of his church. We're all usable by God, and we all have very important roles to play in his story. Why? Because God's Spirit doesn't only dwell upon a few Christian elites. God's Spirit dwells in all of his people. The same Spirit of Christ that's in me is in you, is in Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. Which is actually the lesson that Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos in verse 25. Okay, let's go to our second point. There's no such thing as Christian elitism because God's presence dwells in all of his people. All right, let's go back to our passage. Look at verse 25. It says that as gifted and as educated as Apollos was, there's one thing that he lacked in his theology, in his understanding of the Bible. And it's in the fact that he only knew about the baptism of John. Okay, what does that mean? Well, apparently, there's another kind of baptism that Apollos didn't know about. What kind of baptism? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember what John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3? He said, I now baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, referring to Jesus, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Apollos only knew about John's baptism using water, but he didn't know about Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's a lot of confusion about this verse and what it's talking about, especially in our culture today. And I want to take some time to explain it, okay? What is the difference between Apollos knowing about God, uh, knowing about John's baptism with water, and Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit, okay? And the difference is not a difference of salvation. It's not. Some of you might have heard it said that this verse tells us that Apollos here wasn't a believer yet because he's only been baptized with water. And until he or you experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which means that you will all of a sudden speak in tongues or do stuff like that, you're not yet saved. You've got to get here. And I want to propose to you that that is a misunderstanding of, of the passage. Why? <clears throat> First, the phrase fervent in spirit that verse 25 uses to describe Apollos. It's a phrase used in the New Testament to describe the life of a born-again Christian. Check out Romans chapter 12, verse 11, for example, okay? And Apollos was fervent in spirit. Second, verse 25 also says that Apollos taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. That's pretty explicit. Apollos taught about Jesus accurately. That means he wasn't in total error. And when Priscilla and Aquila talked to him in verse 26, it didn't say that they corrected an error or much less lead an unbeliever to Christ. 
Look at verse 26 again. It says that all Aquila and Priscilla did was help Apollos understand the gospel more accurately. You know how when you first come to Christ and your understanding of the cross and of the gospel and of Jesus, it's not nearly as full or as accurate as it is now that you've been a Christian for a long time. But that doesn't mean that you weren't a Christian back then. It just means that as you grow, your understanding of the gospel also becomes fuller, right? becomes more accurate. There's a lot more to it, but I'll I'll hold off until next week because next week's passage actually talks about this in more detail. But from this passage alone, it's really hard to defend the claim that Apollos went from being unsaved to being saved. He didn't. He went from having a less accurate understanding of the gospel to having a fuller, more accurate one. Okay? So, in what way did Apollos' understanding of the gospel become fuller here? Well, See, this whole time, Apollos thought that Jesus died on a cross only to cleanse us from our sins, which is what John's baptism with water symbolizes, right? The cleansing of sin and impurity. But Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside and told him, that's not the full story. It's accurate, but it's not complete. (laughs) You're missing out on a much bigger story, Apollos. What story? And this is probably not the way they explained it, but I imagine it's in the general ballpark and it gets to the same point at the end, I think. See, Apollos, they might have said. It all started in the Garden of Eden, where God's spirit and presence dwelled directly with his people, right? With Adam and Eve, uninterrupted. But then they sinned. So God kicked his people, Adam and Eve, out of this garden, away from his presence. But in God's mercy, his presence still chose to dwell with his people. But now, after the garden, it's no longer as direct. Ever since the garden, God's spirit or presence dwelled, where? In a temple. Remember in the Old Testament, where only the high priest can come in and out, right? Not everyone as freely as before as Adam and Eve. But of course, like Adam and Eve, God's people, Israel, failed again. They kept sinning, they kept disobeying, they kept rebelling against God, which caused this temple of God's presence to be destroyed and taken away multiple times over and over again in the Old Testament. And the age-long question, Apollos, is still unanswered. The age-long question of how God's people can go back to the garden of how God's spirit and presence can once again dwell with his people because it didn't happen in the garden, it didn't happen in the Old Testament temple. So how is it going to happen? And when all hope had seemed lost, a man came to the scene. A man who made some pretty bold claims. First, he said that he's Emmanuel, which means God's what? Presence with us. And then he said he's going to tear the old temple down where God's presence used to be at, and in three days, he'll raise up a better one. And no one in the world knew what he was talking about until he died on this cross. And in three days, he was raised up again. Where? In a garden. And Mary, who first saw him, mistaken him for what? 
for a gardener. See, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila explained to him, perhaps here, Jesus didn't just come to wash you away of your sins. He came to do what the first gardener, Adam, failed to do. He came to be what the Old Testament temple was never able to be. He came to answer the age-long question of how God's Holy Spirit and presence can once again dwell with his people. And the answer is found on a cross. Jesus didn't just die to wash away your sins. He washed away your sins so that God's Spirit can dwell not only with you, but in you. That's the end goal. That's the fuller picture of the gospel that you lack, Apollos, which is why Ephesians 2 tells us we're all a structure, what? Being joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus didn't die to cleanse you. Jesus died to turn you into the temple of the living God. That's who you are. And that's why you, Christian, get to speak into my life. And that's why you get to contribute in caring for God's people and continue his gospel story because the spirit of the living Christ resides within you. Not just a few Christian elites. Now, I want to do something a little different in my sermon today. If you've noticed, I've never used my sermons to lobby and recruit for church needs. I've been manipulated by pastors who did that in the past, and I just don't like doing that at all. But because our passage today, combined with the huge need of the church that we do have, I decided to do it today. (laughs) Because we are in dire need. We're getting bigger, and we are in dire need for our new members to serve in different areas of the church. A lot of the same people have been serving for years as Bible study leaders, as community group leaders, as children ministry volunteers. And I'm, and I'm scared they're starting to get burned out, and understandably so. We just really need more people to help out. And I get that a lot of people don't feel qualified to, to serve the church or, or, or help in that way. But look, none of us are the kind of servants of God that we will be 20 years from now. I'm not, you're not, and that's okay. There's room to grow. And there are trainings available, we'll help you get there, and you can do it. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ is in you. He's in you too. And that's not just poetic imagery. He's actually in you. And this may relieve some pressure, okay, as we move on to our last point. A lot of people don't feel confident serving the Lord, serving His church, because they're scared that they'll make mistakes. They're scared that they can't do it perfectly. But that's not the point. That's not the way God's Spirit uses us to care for His people. How does He use us? Let's go to our last point. The Spirit uses us to grow God's people by pointing all of us continually to Christ. Look at verse 27. So Apollos got a fuller understanding of the gospel, and he was energized to continue his gospel ministry to a place called Achaia. And in Achaia, it says, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. He 
helped God's church. But how? How did Apollos help God's people in Achaia? By showing them how great his preaching skills were, by showing them how eloquent and educated he was? No. Look at verse 28. He greatly helped those who believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public by showing them through the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Apollos helped God's people in Achaia how? By pointing everyone to Jesus. You don't need to be perfect to serve God. You don't. The Spirit of Christ doesn't build up the people of Christ by pointing them to you. The Spirit of Christ builds up the people of Christ by pointing them to Jesus through you. You don't need to be the Savior. You just need to be willing to point people to Him. Through both your strengths and your weaknesses, my weaknesses can point people to Jesus, absolutely. Of course it can. A wise parent once told me that saying, I'm sorry to your children, is often one of the best discipleship tools you have. Why? Because saying sorry to your kids point your child to the fact that you need Jesus as much as they do. Your mistakes can point people to Jesus, you see. If you're a Christian here today, there really is no reason why you can't contribute in some way to God's work. Spirit of the living Christ is in you, and that makes you unbelievably precious and unbelievably useful. There's this part in uh, The Lord of the Rings, I think I used this a long time ago, where Bilbo Baggins, I think you know who that character is, gave Frodo um, this gift. It was a very light armor undershirt called the Mithril. It's lighter than a feather, but stronger than dragon scales, it says. And Bilbo said, it's the most precious and expensive thing he owns. So he gave it to Frodo, and Frodo wore it underneath his rugged beat-down shirt. The most precious and useful thing Frodo owns was hidden underneath his rugged beat-down shirt. Now, I don't know what's been going on in your life, Christian. You might be feeling a little bit beat-down and rugged yourself. Keep messing up, keep failing different areas of your life just won't go right, a bad habit, you know, an old character flaw, sin just won't seem to be shaken off, and nothing about you right now appears to be of any value. You gotta remember, God's most useful and precious gift is hidden inside of you. It's inside of you. Even Frodo forgot that he was wearing the mithril until an orc attacked him. You might forget it's there, but it's there. Because of that, you're insanely precious and unbelievably useful. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're still exploring the gospel, you don't really know, you know, this whole life with God thing, his presence with you and, and all that talk, you know, that's just, I'm, I'm just here because a friend asked me to come. You know, that, that kind of stuff, it's not even in my periphery. You know, that's just way too far out there to think about. There's way too much stain and flaws in my life separating me from God. 
If that's you, what if I told you that this passage is saying a life with God is actually much closer than you think? What if complete cleansing and the fullness of God's presence is being offered to you right now by the one who succeeded where Adam failed, by the one who made you worthy of God's presence through a cross? What if the good news really was that good? Let's pray. Father, we beg that the Spirit would make clear the words spoken today in the hearts and ears of the people who are here. I pray that it would not land on deaf ears and hard hearts, and it would open eyes. I pray that your presence will be experienced by all of us as we understand the end goal of the cross. And it's not just merely the washing of sins. It is making us into temples of the living God. It's so that a holy God can have his presence dwell within a sinful people after our sins have been dealt with. Help us now, Father, live as those who have your presence in us. Remind us of how precious we are, remind us of how useful and valuable we are, and excite us again to serve you and your gospel story till the end of our days. In Jesus' name we pray.